You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Katherine Miller. She is an actor, director, teacher, community maker. I took a workshop with her last summer that I spoke about on the podcast at the time, but I was blown away with the space that she held for mother artists in that workshop, and we'll talk a lot more about those during the podcast We also talk a lot about her clown work and realize that we didn't define what that means since I had some similar training in my grad school experiences. So the clown referenced here is both theatrical form and aesthetic, a distant cousin to the American circus clown and more closely related to other physical forms such as Buffon, Commedia dell'arte, and Mask. Catherine has studied clown and applied it as actor, director, and educator for the last 20 plus years, studying with Jane Nichols, Gregor Paslowski, and Philippe Goulier, among others. Hopefully I pronounced those correctly. Most notably, she studied under Chris Bays, currently the head of physical acting at Yale School of Drama, with whom she also apprenticed and whose clown pedagogy she teaches. She established the Institute for Collaboration and Play in 2014 as an action-thinking tank for performers and humans interested in play-based creative practice. And she founded The Mamas, Mother Artists Making Art, in 2020 to foreground the value and visibility of mother artists. You can find more information on those at their websites, which I'll put in the show notes, www.ifcap.org or www.motherartistsmakingart.com. She is a force, and I'm so happy to have her on the podcast. I hope you enjoy the 184th episode of The Compass. What do you do to try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? And wrapped up in that is what is what does the dark side mean to you when you hear that? What do you think of? I think of despair. <laughs> I think of despair like, oh, it's so hard and no one cares at all. I was thinking about um, this question and knowing that you had posed it to other guests. Guests? people on your podcast and um, <laughs> guest makes it sound like this is this is Ellen DeGeneres here we go um and I was thinking about something that one of my um advisors said to me in graduate school I went to an unusual graduate school program which we can talk about at some other time if it's relevant but for my second semester in grad school I had a playwright as an advisor a lovely playwright who's based out of Minneapolis and um she told me I was really struggling. I was really at a point of um, transition in my career. And I'd had a physical theater company for like, I don't know, seven years. And and we had disbanded because it was unsustainable for us to continue to make work um, as we were, which takes a lot of time and takes a kind of, because we were making work through the lens of clown, it takes a kind of specialized performer in a way to step into that room if they don't know how to operate in those mm-hmm. modalities with that aesthetic. And and many of our friends or, or colleagues, compatriots, and their love of that work were also really starting to pop, especially the guys. They were really starting to pop as actors. So it was really hard to get everyone in the room and work for little or no pay, a passion project, all of that. After a certain point in your life, you get tired of passion projects being only the things. 
And so I was in graduate school and the theater company had ended and all my artistic collaborators had sort of disappeared in one swoop. And I was, I'd lived in New York for quite some time by then. And I like, I don't know what it was by then, like 15 years or something. And um, I was like, I think I need to go away <laughs> and uh, and like have a yard or something and, and health insurance, which I did have through SAG, but, you know, inconsistently. So right. um, anyway, this, I ended up at this amazing progressive graduate program and um, my advisor said, as I was having this like crushed, like my soul was crushed and I presented this work in progress that I'd been working on myself um, at Dixon Place, and it was called Mary Poppins, colon, a show about Mary Poppins, where I pretended to be all the parts of the Mary Poppins Disney movie myself <laughs> at once as a, you know, an idiot virtuosic. <laughs> and I used like all my childhood stuffed animals and they all had labels and they were all basically cats and they were like Mr. and Mrs. Banks and Uncle Albert and all the people um, of the world of Mary Poppins. And I had a flip chart and I had a running list about why <laughs> Mary Poppins was important and all the important lessons that we learned from Mary Poppins, which children aren't watching now. I interviewed other parents. Uh, I wasn't a parent then, but I interviewed parents and no one was showing Mary Poppins to their children. I was like, where's our, where's our? And so it was this whole giant effort. It was like two huge suitcases full of props. And it was, it was ridiculous and like exhausting and, and, and still to some degree incomplete when I showed it at Dixon Place. And I, but I had this whole amazing journey to creating this work through the lens of clown, but without the red nose, obviously, but through the lens of an idiot, an idiot um, vir virtuoso and um, who has a terrible idea and decides to put it on stage in front of people. And that was my terrible idea. Like all the parts of the Disney Mary Poppins has <laughs> and my cat puppets. And so Anyway, Kira, I had this crisis after that show where uh, someone I'd been working with, like, as a kind of, um, I'm not even sure how to define his role because he began as a former student who was like an assistant, like, I just want to be around the work. How can I help you? And he evolved into kind of like a, a semi-co-performer. Like he sat on stage and did all the live Foley mm. and, um, and so it was like a solo, uh, she was billing it as a she meaning me was billing it as a solo show with two people because she was so inept at even making a solo show. Anyway, he had initiated this conversation with me after that presentation about how what I was trying to create was really essentially solipsistic and no one was going to want to see a show about just me having a good time on stage, right? There was a whole section about Mary Poppins plays super password. Like it was full of derivatives. <laughs> and he was like, there's no narrative. There's no, you know, the things that we are taught as undergraduates, if you will, to look for in theater. None of that structural Aristotelian shit was in there. It was just like one silly thing after the next that culminated in this like revelation when she puts the cat puppets to sleep because her cat has died. <laughs> and so she sings, you know, stay awake to the cat. I mean, and then everybody in the audience got a paper kite. It was really lovely. People cried like, but he was like, this isn't theater. And I remember thinking, if you don't think this is theater, then you shouldn't be a part of this with me. And I get that. And that's your prerogative. Go go make what you want to make. Um, I'm now going to have to start over again. <laughs> and I was just kind of crushed. And I just, mm. I was like, I think Kira, her name was Kira, the playwright advisor. And I was like, I think I have to give up on theater and write like personal essays about, I don't fucking know, like just some stuff and she would like, and give up. And she said, um, the theater doesn't take care of its own. And that made such sense to me. I was like, no, it doesn't. It kind of takes us for granted. Mm -hmm. You hear about the, the intense community that exists at the Broadway level. And I believe that that exists. And those folks are contracted to be in those shows for long periods of time and they have babies and they get married and they have there's a, a there's a structure I feel like in that model that production model but if you're an itinerant person making strange non-narrative theater in small places very clear that my show is not going to be in Midtown unless it's an accident and it's at like Shoshana like it's not going to be in Midtown anywhere 
there isn't that. It's really itinerant. It's really here to there to there to there. And I also had a side hustle, which wasn't even a hustle. It was like a side thing of being in television commercials. I found this niche where I was a funny white lady. And that was my bread and butter for a long time. Mm. I never made bazillions of dollars, but I made enough to have insurance and to not have to have a um, a day job doing something else. And I consider that a huge success. And that huge. allowed me to have my strange physical theater company for the seven years that I ran it with a partner, Justine Williams, um, also a wonderful clown and now a mother artist as well. Um, we met in a Chris Bay's workshops, another story. But anyway, Kara was like, the theater doesn't take care of its own. And I thought, you're so right. It doesn't. Like, I could disappear tomorrow. And it's not like Kristen Chenoweth. If she disappeared tomorrow, people would really notice. <laughs> but I was like, who is going to notice? Like, we watched companies fold that we really liked. We watched that because when we came into the city, the model was still that you had to turn your fledgling theater company into a 501c3. So we were a 501c3. And those are hard to maintain. They have a specific tax mm -hmm. policy that you have to have with you have to really you have to follow certain rules with your board and with the with how things are navigated, understandably, so that your donors can receive a tax deduction. It's a part of the transaction, right? And that's why you have that status. And we'd had a fiscal sponsor at first, and it was more complicated because the fiscal sponsor always took a little percentage of the of the monies that we would receive, which was how they then get paid to be your fiscal sponsor and make sure you're doing everything legally. And it was a whole big, long thing. And so we watched these other companies fold and I was like, yeah, we could disappear. And I don't think anyone's going to cry. <laughs> Isn't that strange <laughs> when you have something that you put yourself yeah. into and to have that feeling? I mean, it's a strange thing about theater in general, that it is like a live a yeah. live thing that dissolves into the air after you're yes. done with it. But that's yes. the fact that we're all still human and part of a community and it still has that feeling that yes, if I went away. Yes. And I had just experienced like an intense grief of, even though running the glass contraption was quite difficult and challenging in many ways, it was also what Justine and I had both prioritized as being artistically fulfilling. And in that choice that we made, we also were consciously stepping away from some of the more commercial pursuits that our colleagues were still involved in. And even though I did TV commercials, it's not the same as like going away to Minnesota for three months to do a show. Right, right. <laughs> and so those would take a day or two, right? And so um, so Kira was like, you're, you're at a little bit of a crossroads. And she's like, I challenge you to find some way to be creative that isn't reliant upon having, I was so, um, I'd spent so long in the ensemble devising model of making work that I was, even though I just made this stupid solo show about Mary Poppins, I still made it with at least two other people in the room at all times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, because you can't make a clown based thing without an audience, you have to constantly be like, is this funny? Did you think it's funny? Or <laughs> I think it's funny. Is it funny three times in a row or is it only funny once? Right. Is it funny 20 times in a row? Are there other ways to, I mean, she had a phone call with Oprah in that show. She had all kinds of like stupid antics that <laughs> I still think are funny, but, <laughs> and she was terribly inappropriate. Like she, she, she crossed lines in terms of her political correctness, correctness, like all the time. It was a lot of fun to do. My British accent is terribly inconsistent, but it didn't matter because right, right, right. he's not a good performer, right? So Kara was like, you need to find things that you like to do. And this was my second semester of graduate school, and it was an, an MFA in interdisciplinary arts. So it was a program that recognized that there are groups of us that are a multi-hyphenate artists, and we don't fit other places. And it was not appropriate for me at that stage in my life to go get an MFA in acting. I already wanted to be teaching the people right. I was listening alongside. I wanted to be teaching them clown. I wanted to pull them aside and be like, listen, this is, <laughs> this is the form that's going to help you the most. And at this school, this person teaches it. So what, what me... school did you go to? You got to just tell us now. Oh, oh, I, from uh, undergrad, I went to Hofstra University on Long Island. Mm -hmm. 
and then my graduate degree is from uh, Goddard College, which is in Vermont. Okay. And it's a college. Uh, it's a it's a low residency MFA designed because Goddard has a history of activism. The Bread and Puppet Theater was in residence there for like decades. And they also have a history of educating people that nobody else wanted, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like wanted to educate like unwed mothers and people of color, which Amazing. is for Vermont, but God bless. Like they were like, our doors are open. We're creating different models for education here so that you can come into a, an academic setting and we will embrace you with your learning differences or your life differences. And we still say you deserve to get to be educated in a way that partners with your life. So my graduate program was filled with extraordinary practitioners who, for whatever reason, ages like 28 to like fucking, there was a dude in the 70s, <laughs> were, like, were, were people who were blending form and were deeply interested in the impact their art would have in the world. And so if you're drawn to those questions, a traditional MFA in playwriting or directing or acting or even like piano performance or sculpturing or whatever is not going to be asking you those questions. It's going to ask you, um, it's going to work with you to be the most incredible practitioner that program can produce right. you. Right. And so, um, and that's a, that's a worthwhile pursuit for some people that really makes a lot of sense. And it, it wouldn't make sense for me. Um, and I had always in looking back been asking these larger questions about the theater and its purpose and why does it matter and what is it doing in the world? And it's not to say that people who matriculate through more traditional MFA programs aren't also asking those questions. What I'm saying is that their programs of study are not centralizing those questions alongside their programs of study. Right. So you can get out of Juilliard, which is an amazing training program, as you well know, <laughs> and no one could ask you that question. Right. And so, um, and there are people who come out of Juilliard who do have secret generative desires, and they're, that's something that they don't have the skills or the musculature to engage with. And yet you can put any accent in front of them, any time period of a piece, and they like know exactly what to do. And so, which is the thing that I would have to go look it up in the library. At this point. <laughs> Um, so what did you do when she told you that, that you had to find something that you could do on your own? I, I wandered around and cried. Yeah. And um, and then towards the end of that second semester, I was approached by um, a colleague of mine in the program who was probably a decade older than me, maybe a little bit more, had a background as a visual artist a photographer and he would he was working in what he called performance photography and I'm like what is this I've never heard of this I don't understand what this is and he asked me if I would collaborate with him and I was like sure whatever and so we applied to a residency which actually was started by a Juilliard graduate I don't think it exists anymore it was called Make House and this guy he was a lovely guy oh Mark Junick Mark but his yeah. clown name was um oh I don't know what his real clown name was, but he wanted his clown to be named Sparkle Horse. And he campaigned for the name Sparkle Horse forever. And Chris Bays, who teaches clown at Juilliard, was like, no, you can't have that name. <laughs> so, but I always think of him as Sparkle Horse. Anyway, Sparkle Lovely. Horse had this like residency thing that he was doing at this house in New Jersey. And John and I applied and we were accepted and we went for this weekend. And it was our first in like a first collaboration. And I came to the table with like 85,000 surprise ideas, but some of them were very specific. And even though he and I had very different backgrounds and artistic lives and, and personal lives until that point, there was a lot of overlap in terms of how we were exploring identity. And, but I was exploring identity through the lens of the mask, right? Having worked with the clown's red nose and worked with comedian masks. And I was, a, I was going through a phase where I was obsessed with, different kinds of beard wigs <laughs> and putting them on and being different people, which fit right in with his um, exploration of gender and what, what can you wear or not wear and what, who, who are you and blah, blah, blah. So we did a whole series of me wearing all these stupid beards and mustaches. <laughs> and every time I would put one on, I was like, I think I'm this person. Oh, I think I'm this person. And he's like, what is this? And we just thoroughly enjoyed ourselves 
And, um, and that was the beginning of the most rewarding artistic collaboration I've ever had. Mm-hmm. It lasted about five years. Also, it lasted past graduate school. And we, he lived in, he still does. He lives in Silver Spring, Maryland with his husband. And like, we found a way to collaborate across form and across geographical distance. And we developed a whole kind of approach to interdisciplinary collaboration that began with a collaboration for one other person, like a dialogue that we found was easily adaptable to, um, to a classroom setting or a collaborative generative setting that um, was interested in like exploring. And then I also learned that John, unbeknownst to me when our collaboration began, actually um, at that point had probably 20 something years of experience working alongside Liz Lerman in her critical response process. Mm. He came into our collaboration with this deeply grounded um, sense of values from working in critical response that come from a place of looking at work in development as uh, through a series of questions that are based in curiosity and wondering versus the way we are trained to look at art, which is one like of, of wrongness. Like what's wrong about this piece of art? What don't I like about it? What would I fix about it? Like we are a little bit trained to come and look at art through that lens. And it's really unhelpful to the generative or the presenting artist when you're in a room and, and everyone in there is like, well, I would change that. I don't understand that. How many, like, why would you ever show your art ever again? So John stepping into an unfamiliar collaboration with me because of the, my performance background and my clown background, because of his um, way of looking at art. And also there's a spaciousness in how an idiot may, (laughs) or a clown may also look at art and just some things that were innate in me prior to discovering clown as a form that um, we found this way of holding space for each other and challenging each other artistically. And it didn't mean that we abandoned the the practices that we had prior, but we expanded them. So we expanded our own artistic language and it was so exciting. So I actually eventually put myself in front of the camera. I started in, in performance photography. I started manipulating tiny objects in front of the camera and which was a kind of, um, object animation, right? Uh, like, um, like stop motion. A little bit. I did a little stop. That shit is hard. (laughs) A little stop motion. Like, um, and we found that we both were curious about the power of tiny things and clown for me, um, which was the, the sort of the lens through which I applied to this graduate program was that I was very clear. I wanted to deconstruct clown and reconstruct it in my own, with my own language, if you will, that by that point I'd studied the form for about 15 years. And I'd studied with Chris Bayes for a long time. He was a collaborator, a mentor, a teacher. And then I apprenticed under him. And I was at that point, one of six, I think people, who had his blessing to teach his pedagogy in the world, which is a big deal. It meant that after a decade (laughs) of study with him and a bunch of people before him, that I had enough understanding, innate understanding of this form and its value that I could then pass it on to other folks through his pedagogy. But I also knew that Chris Bays was at that point, not really interested in cultivating a legacy of like Jacques Lecoq, like a legacy of teachers and, and, um, and when the glass contraption folded, I was like, I just have to do it myself. And so it opened up in a period of where I was even more anchored in what clown is and could be. I found I was applying it to, to surprisingly to myself, to all these other seemingly non-performative forms of art making. And that was super satisfying. And that experience gave me a further, like I was further rooted in my own understanding of what clown was and could be, as I said. And then also 
that I actually did have a, a visual aesthetic <laughs> that you don't think of when you're an actor because you're constantly right. told what to wear and you don't get a lot of say. And you're working really hard to mold yourself into the vision that the director has or the collective vision, right? Which is part of your service, being at service. And you want to do really good at that and you want to get hired again. And so you don't stop and think like what you would do with the set for Julius Caesar, right? There's no one stopping to ask you. And I realized that I had always been thinking what I would do with the set of Julius Caesar if I was in Julius Caesar. Like I would, when I was in my 20s, probably like mid to late 20s, I played Emilia in Othello. And I remember my older brother, who's a pianist, who lived in the city at the time, saying to me, you're a director. And I was like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I was like, no, I am not. I don't know what you're thinking about. I was like playing Amelia is like the best thing ever. I love it. I'm crying. I'm dying. It's fabulous. Listen to the tech. <laughs> Look at me go. And he was like, no, you're a director. And I said, why are you saying that? And he said, because you are always thinking about the totality of the theatrical event. And I was like, oh, you're right about that. And then, but then I kept that a secret. And I, <laughs> and I didn't tell anyone mm. until, I don't know, probably 10 years after that conversation where I was like applying to the director's lab of Chicago. And I recalled <laughs> that conversation. And I was like, oh, I am, I am a director. <laughs> but I'm not a director in the way that you, that I had always thought of them as people with binders and like walking, walking. telling you where to stand and right. look window on this line. It had nothing to do with that. It was a, coming out of this, these decades of working in these strange and unusual forms that are highly generative and very celebratory of the uniqueness of a particular performer and, and somewhat non-narrative and experiential. And it was coming out of that. And I was like, oh, this is, I really want to steer ships that are headed towards this. And, um, I remember being on a city bus and running into an, another alumni from your school who was, who probably graduated from your school in like, I don't know, in the 99-ish or so around that time. And she had, a, a she was working a lot and she ran into me on a bus and we knew each other because of a workshop that I taught with Chris, blah, blah. And um, she was auditioning for a big, big movie with Will Smith and this and that. But she was like, what do I do with these sides? How do I? And then she had all this anxiety. And here she is on the bus with me. And I was like, here's what you do. And I was like, forget the job. I was like, you read this and you have the best fucking time of your life doing this drunk lady, whatever the character was. I was like, or this like floozy. I was like, have a great fucking time. It's like, that's what you do. I was like, I already know that you would be great at this job. And it's a really a matter of like, do they want you to do this job? I don't know. And you don't know either. So your job in this moment is to go be extraordinary and stop worrying about what they, and I was like, have the best fucking time of your life. And she looked at me like, oh yeah. She was like, thank you so much. And I was like, you're so welcome. I believe in you. Go forward. She got off the bus and I actually felt this sense of relief that that hustle wasn't so primary to my life anymore. Yeah. I was like, oh, I feel so... Really, now this woman is on like a lot of television shows and she's just having a thrive. She's thriving and it's so well-deserved and, and she's an amazing human and performer. And, and I'm like, yeah, but I remember that day on that bus being like, whoa, I, five years ago, if I'd run into her, I would have been super jealous that mm. she had an audition that I didn't have, even though they wouldn't have even wanted me for that type. <laughs> But I still would have been jealous. And instead, I was just like, go, go have a great fucking time that you have the skills, you have the gifts. Like at this point, we all know that. So it's really like, can you just have a great time in that moment in front of, right? And so do you I feel like you're able to do that for yourself when you do find yourself in those, those positions again, those kinds of audition situations. I gave myself that grace. A, a lot of the time before I became a parent in the la in that last section of my career. And then I've been a parent for five years now. And I found another kind of disappearance happened 
when I became a parent. And it was even more radical in a way because I had an infant that I was responsible for. And it's not like I could just drop the infant off and go to Beth Milsky casting for 20 minutes here and there. Like that was not something that I could do. My body was different. And my understanding of myself and who I was had been radically altered in a way that I also didn't anticipate. And so I have had very few auditions <laughs> since becoming a parent. Um, and instead I find I'm having a lot of um, really intense conversations with people who may be parents or not trying to explain <laughs> what it's like to be <laughs> a new mother. I can't speak for dads. And I think they have a different kind of um, sense of their own role and responsibility, especially in, in parenting an infant. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not to say, and I had, I, I've held the babies of other people at commercial auditions. I've been doing that for a decade. Like we all just would rally. If someone came in with her kids and she had to go into the room, we would rally. And I would, we would, we would keep the children quiet. We would do like, I didn't know these women, but it was just what we did, right? We took care of who was there to take care of. So it wasn't like I didn't even think that was part of it. I couldn't even imagine getting my kid to Beth Melsky casting in the first place. Right. Even get there um, and hand him to someone. <laughs> yeah. So I, I really want to talk all about um, the mamas and the pamas. But can you tell us a little bit first about deciding to become a parent as an artist and like what that journey has been for you? Sure. I, we've already seen, as evidenced by <laughs> what I've shared so far, that I was not on a traditional path right. towards being a Broadway star. I came to the city with that in mind, but um, that started to change. And I took my first clown class when I was 26. And um, it was impactful right away. I was like, whoa, there's something going on here. And it it gave me um, language, not just like language of how to talk about it, but experiential language for how to hold space for my strengths as a performer that no other form had done prior. As a six foot tall white lady with giant blue eyes and a, and a sort of big nose and dimples, I didn't fit into a lot of boxes. I was really funny and I was could be very vulnerable and cry for you like ding dong doodly, but I couldn't <laughs> more in the glass menagerie. Right. Because I was taller than everybody. And so finding this world where my body fit and my timing fit and my receptivity fit was so satisfying. So I was already like not following a traditional path, <laughs> even though it was very gratifying to my parents that I was in television commercials. <laughs> I feel like that was really, and it was great. I, I had the best agent in the planet and it was great. Um, so by the time I was having that crisis right after the glass contraption closed and I'd finished my apprenticeship and all my, all my artistic collaborators disappeared. And I'm in this strange graduate program. I was already like, how can I get out? Like, how can I, where else can I go? Or can I adopt a small person, which came from my theater company spending a summer in South Africa. We did a two month residency in South Africa. And one of those months we spent at the Topsy Center for Children Living with HIV and AIDS. And we taught clown and created a clown show with them. And we lived there for a month. And Justine had said, by the time we all leave this place, there's each one of us is going to have a child that we want to adopt. And I was like, you're crazy. No, we're not. <laughs> true. There were six of us. And we all recognized like all the complicated, like racial like all the like implications of being white people from America coming to a country and saying, I really want that Zulu child to come live with me. And the arrogance of that. And at the same time, there was a child for each of us that spoke to us somewhere in our hearts and had the world of parenting or caregiving open up in a way mm -hmm. that for most of us, except for Justine, because she'd already thought about it, was, was totally new. And so having that experience myself, 
I was like, what the fuck is this? And I did not expect that kind of thing to open up in me. I didn't expect adoption to be a conversation I would be thinking about. And so I came back from that and I had a conversation with my financial planner. And I was like, how can we set me up to be able to do this someday? As a freelance actor with nothing, living in a law firm and in Astoria, I was like, how can we transition? And so there were other conversations that were running alongside the conversation when the theater company disappeared, right? And so um, I was working my way towards trying to find a job in academia, teaching clowns so that I could have a house so that I could adopt a child. And um, my, and then I happened to meet um, the man that I married and, and, and now I'm divorced from, but I met him when I was in graduate school and I, Um, I thought also that becoming a parent um, as a person who just crossed into her forties, that I knew a lot of stuff and that I would be like, I, I, I wasn't a 25 year old. Like I was like, I, I got, I got some life knowledge. I got not about parenting per se, but I got some, I'm a lot of my friends are parents now. Like, it's not like I was the first one out of the gate. I was the last one out of the gate. (laughs) So I was like, I was like, I can do this. My agent was fabulously supportive, like an amazing human. She has in her office, my commercial agent, she has her like a wall in her office picture covers with pictures of her um, clients, babies and pets. (laughs) (laughs) Opportunity parent celebrator. And um, uh, so I, uh, there was no hesitancy for me when he showed up as a potential life partner with the same desire. I was like, let's get it on. I was like, let's do it. Like, like, let's go. And so I, I had, I didn't have, um, because I thought he would be my partner for life. And there was a certain kind of life that he presented that we would have mm-hmm. together. I thought I would be um, somehow exempt <laughs> from some of the challenges that I knew other artist parents faced, especially two right. artist households. Right. But I was not. They showed up in their own way for me. And um, they were very hard to sit with. And there were some very old gendered ways of thinking that he was carrying from his culture and his experience that I don't think he was quite in touch with. Um, and I wasn't prepared for how different my body felt as a physical theater practitioner, a person who I, at that point I had something that I had invented called the Institute for Collaboration and Play. And I was running a laboratory, which was a monthly lab for any creative person to come and play. Like we need places to exercise our play muscles. It's like, you need to keep exercising those muscles of spontaneity and curiosity and imagination because that's, what's going to let you be free enough to go into your audition for Will Smith and be like, fuck this. I'm just going to have a good time right? And let that lead. And so, and that's when you're most, you're at your most captivating, I think, as a performing artist, is when your skills and your imagination are traveling, like, so I can't tell what's driving. When I watch Mark Rylance play, I like on stage, I know that man is wicked skilled. Like, forget it. That opening thing in Jerusalem where he like goes into a handstand and dunks his face into the, (laughs) come on, wicked skilled. And yet, I don't see his skill. Right. I see his his imagination. And it's a little bit dangerous. But but never like someone's going to get hurt, but it's a little dangerous like I'm not sure how far he's going to lean. Is he going to lean how far? <laughs> he's gonna lean? And so right? So um I lost my train of thought. <laughs> we were talking about um your decision to become a parent just cuz I don't want all our time to get away from us. Um can we talk a little bit about what the mamas is and you starting it and where that came from, from your own experience. Um, I wrote an essay when I was pregnant and it was called um, three things, how to talk to a pregnant person. And um, because I was so tired of people feeling the license to touch my body and comment (laughs) on my body. And I was a tall person, right. And I was carrying a large baby and the people would say, are you sure it's not twins? And I would be like, I mean, do you think another baby's hiding in the ultrasound? Like that nobody noticed and it's, I'm eight months pregnant. Like the audacity to say right. to me, right? 
we don't go up to other bodies and say, did you have two slices of pizza for lunch or six? <laughs> like we don't do that with other people, but we feel it's okay to do it with pregnant people. So I was super pissed, wrote this essay. And then somehow in my like late night, what the fucking uh, for my art mother artist identity, when my son was like six ish months old. And I was like, I don't understand. And I kept delaying my return to leading workshops in part because it was not something that my home life could support. Um, and so I just kept pushing back. I kept calling Carol, my agent and saying, I just need six more months. And she was like, whatever you need, you take it. She's still saying that to me. <laughs> um, so I found Rachel Spencer Hewitt, who founded PAL, the Parent Artist Advocacy League. And I'm not even sure how I found her. Um, if someone pointed her out to me or she was in the Theater Moms Facebook group or what it was. But I was like, I wrote this thing. What do you think? And she was like, I want to publish it on our blog. And I was like, okay, do it. <laughs> so she did it. And like Laura Benanti retweeted it somewhere. <laughs> and I felt like a famous person for five minutes. I was like, oh, mom, Laura Benanti's won like a, some Tonys and stuff. And she tweeted my essay about pregnant people. <laughs> She's a lovely human, Laura Benanti. I've met her just a couple of times. Very lovely, kind person. Her daughter is like three months-ish younger than my son. Um, anyways, so then a conversation started with Rachel um, and I knew that I was craving this kind of like transparent, supportive dialogue with other mothers and mother artists. I was like, what the F? No one talked about this part. No one talked about that part. No one talked about the fact that I'm just as capable of teaching clown, but now no one is calling me. Like they weren't calling me that much before. <laughs> I was like, but now right. what you've just decided that I'm home lactating and I can't do it. And I'm telling you, I can do it. But I also felt like, can I do it? Because I can't leave my child, right? I didn't have the structures of support for me to go teach a workshop that didn't exist in my life. It looked like it did from the outside, perhaps because of where we lived and how we lived or how we seemed to live is really more accurately. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't have it. And so. Um, that questioning too is interesting. Yeah. Like, can I do it? Yes. Just because, you know, there's things that we haven't done since we became a mother. And there is that wondering of like, Yes. Will it be different? <laughs> I, knew, I knew a mom who was a director and she went back to work when her first child was six weeks old. And I couldn't have imagined doing that at all, but it was what she needed to do and what she did. And she took her child with her into all the rooms and nursed him. And he was just there and her spouse was wicked supportive and, and helped make that happen for her. And like, I was like, awesome. That is not my story. And I don't even know if mm -hmm. I want that to be my story because I waited a really long time to be a parent. And I had this friend who I was looking at the, the um, actor center has that wonderful teacher training program every summer um, for people who teach actors and right. I've been eyeing it for a long time. And I started eyeing it that summer because somebody in particular was on the faculty and and I remember, and this was my son was probably like six, eight months. And I said to a friend of mine, I really want to do this. And he'd done it and had a fabulous experience. And and I said, but I don't think I could be in a room from nine to four or whatever for two full weeks. I was like, I'm still nursing. Like, how would I do that? And he said to me, you know, you really wanted to be a mother. So just let be be a mother. Let yourself have that. And I didn't know. And I so appreciated him saying that to me and I didn't apply. And I was like, I'm just going to be a mother. But there was something in that that felt liberating and also terrifying. Because when you matriculate as a freelance artist, you um, are always being evaluated on what you're working on and what's next. Exactly. There's two things. It's not even just what are you doing right now? It's what are you doing next? So you are constantly hustling to get the thing that's next and the thing that's next after that and the thing that's next after that. And that takes, that's so tiring. And I had already moved away from so many ways that that is damaging to a person in terms of how I was constructing my life. And I still carried it with me to some degree in terms of, is it okay for me to just walk every day and 
Washington Square Park. I knew that there were things that I wanted to accomplish. I still have these big ideas about transforming how we train um, actors at the undergraduate level and introducing conversations about generative content and like how to think about yourself spaciously and, and, to, and with a holistic um, encompassing approach. Like that's not a conversation a 19 year old cannot have. I've had it with them <laughs> as my students, right? They're craving it. And so I have all these goals and ambitions for how to create space for artists to be in dialogue with each other. Um, and like dialogue, dialogue, but also creative dialogue, like interdisciplinary, like bust the form out dialogue. And so I really was like, what the fuck? And then when my son was 18-ish months old, I got the idea for the mamas. I We'd moved to Brooklyn by then. And I was like, there was a mother that I knew who was a designer who lived somewhere else in Williamsburg. And I was just kind of stalking her a little. And I was like, I was like okay, if I can just get her into a room, I think I'll be okay. If I can just <laughs> sit in a room with her, I think I'll be okay. And so I contacted Rachel and my son was like in the stroller and I was talking to her on the phone. I was like, this is my idea. And I literally wrote shit down on a piece of paper, like on top of the stroller handle, walking on Bedford or whatever. In Williamsburg. <laughs> and then my life took some um, life, like hard life turns with some pregnancy losses that segued right into a really... Um, contentious and prolonged divorce that took two years. So it took, a, I, there was no stability in my life in terms of for me to say to Rachel, I can start this thing now and I won't, I can show up for what I say I'm going right. to do. And so it took me moving out of that house and the divorce getting finalized for me to finally say to Rachel, I think I can do it now. And I've been thinking about it for so long and there's a pandemic now, so we can't meet in person anymore, which was the original idea. I was like, I think I can do this now and do it virtually. And two of my former students that I taught when they were seniors in college were both pregnant. And I was like, and I really want to be able to do this for them while they are pregnant. I was like, they're really wonderful women and performers and I don't want them to feel alone. I can't to help them, like they'll still feel alone. <laughs> one is partnered, one is not. I was like, they live in different, one lives in New Jersey, one lives in DC. I was like, I don't care if it's just them. Like, I was like, I want to be able to start having these conversations to hold space for these really complicated questions that um, are asked in, I learned a phrase, whisper societies. Hmm things, conversations that only happen over here in, in people who know. And I think motherhood, birthing, the process of birthing is a whisper society. Sexual harassment is a whisper society, right? It only happens like, and I think for mothers who are um, brave enough to recognize that these questions are at play in their lives, deserve a space. There are mothers who are ignoring the question. I think every mother is asking these questions. But there are some of us who have more facility with hard questions of identity and purpose. It's not to say that a banker doesn't have those questions or a dentist. I, I, I believe that they are also extraordinary mothers and people and doing what they need to do and hopefully what they love to do in life. <laughs> but I think artists traverse in complicated questions. It's like our language. And then our art is how we choose to investigate answers to those questions whether I'm investigating it with a sculpture or a production of Hamlet or my TV sitcom about my crazy childhood in Chinatown, like I'm trying to, to, to find answers to some really big questions. And those questions are like way down deep. Like, do I matter? Does my story matter? Who gets to tell my story? Do I belong? What does it mean to be a this, this, and a this together? What, what happened to my mother? Is it going to happen to me? Can I stop it from happening to other people? Like, these are really deep, deep, deep questions. What have you been experiencing um, yourself since starting these groups and holding this space for people? Um, it's really humbling and gratifying. I feel the need. So, I mean, it's all happening in a virtual space right now. And I feel the need so viscerally through my computer when a mom logs on and she has a seven week old baby and she's like, I don't fucking know what, I don't know what's just happened to me. And it's clear that she loves her baby. 
but she's like, I don't know what just happened to me. And we introduce ourselves and hands down, half of the people introducing themselves will say something like, I used to be a playwright, but I don't know what I am now. And there's this dismissal of self. There's this way that motherhood somehow disappears our body of work or disappears our, our sense of our creative aspirations or our creative muscles. And I so firmly want to assert that in fact, no, that's not what's happening that your muscles are being flexed probably in ways that they've never been flexed before and with a rigor that they've never had to be flexed before because you're dealing with somebody who's upset at bedtime or you're dealing with somebody who doesn't want to eat the blank that you put in front of them. So you got to go to the fridge and come up with something else, or you got to make the, the thing that's in front of this child really exciting <laughs> <laughs> that they'll eat it. Right. And so you, your stakes are really high and your creativity and how you look at the world is to me directly informing the choices that you're making as a parent. And so why can't we um, celebrate that convergence rather than um, like with the, the divergence, that's all the messaging that happens in the world out there, one or the other mother or right. professional. limiting. Yeah, like, fuck that shit. Mother artists have been around since mothers have been around and art has been around. <laughs> so why why are we pretending like they're not? Because it's so much easier. <laughs> because the world really would collapse if the uncompensated wages, like not wages, if the labor of mothers, which is un, uncompensated, um, disappeared. It's the, it's the unpaid labor of mothers that makes the world go. <laughs> And so if we were to take that out, right? So everyone else is benefiting from our labor and it's a labor of love, you say. And yes, it is. And it is also labor. And we like, so there's there's a lot of ferocity in me towards dismantling and exposing these incredibly narrow conversations that many of us carry in ourselves. And we're grappling with them ourselves. Um, and well, that's what I'm just so grateful that I was able to be a part of it. One of your sessions, just because I, I feel like as a parent, I've been so isolated, especially obviously with the pandemic, that I I can only have them with myself. Like I'm just not being in the spaces with other moms. We're all busy doing our own thing. Yeah, um, and we so lost. We yeah. lost the village. That's another I, thing I that I'm trying the village. To, to, to restore is we lost yeah. a, a village mentality. We lost a, an idea that I have your back, you have mine. Let me give you some sugar and I'll take your kid for an hour. Like we lost, we lost, and our children have lost that as well. They've lost that sense that I, they can run up and down the street or the hallway or wherever they are living and that they know who's behind the doors. Right. And they know where the secret, where the keys are hidden. And if there's an emergency, they go to Mrs. Tinker across the street or whatever it is. We've lost a lot of that. And it's, it's so apparent when you are, when the, when the pandemic happened and, and everybody was stuck at home and all of a sudden the labor of mothers, in addition to all the other things was right in front of everybody. And um, the moms were turning to their partners and saying, well, now you are going to do three hours of coloring so I can go do the thing that I would normally have done when my, when our child was in school. And the other person is like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of times they're like, ah, 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 what? and it, it's, I, I just, the, the sentence that I use is that the mamas and the, the pamas exists and the mamas is mother artists making art and the pamas is pregnant artists making art just so people know what it stands for, as leading a movement to foreground the value and visibility of mother artists. And it's like, whatever comes from the mamas and the pamas, whatever I write or do or conversations I have or workshops or like, like whatever I'm facilitating is to, is for that. It's in service of that idea. And, um, this lot, like two weekends ago, I had the honor of being in the gathering um, intensive for the 2022 cohort, cohort for people who are 
pursuing certification in the critical response process, that that thing that a decade ago, John introduced in our collaboration that was so meaningful. And then I started to use as a, as a facilitator and an educator all the time. And I applied with mother artist as my underserved community. And there was a young woman in the cohort. There's only 10 of us, right? Everybody is a super badass. And this gal comes up to me and she was like, you know what? And I said, what? And she said, every time we talk about different groups in society, you know, with all sorts of different identifiers, she said, mother is never a group. And I said, no, we are invisible. We're in all those groups, but we're not our own group. And, and it's not to say that we should be our own group uh, like uh, and nothing else. But I was like, but no one is recognizing that when a mother is in all those groups, she's she's also contending with all these other things that come with being a mother. And uh, we should be paying attention to that. We should be working towards a mattress-centric feminist society. One of my new favorite phrases. And... Um, I, I, I'm, I'm ferociously committed to that. It's very idealistic, but it's like one conversation at a time. And sometimes the first conversation is sitting with that mom. Who's the mom who takes the chalk out to the sidewalk when all the kids are on the sidewalk and they have nothing to do and they're getting cranky. She takes the chalk out and she's the, the known as the chalk mom on their block or whatever. And and I'm talking to this mom and I'm like, how does your artistry connect to your parenting? And she's like, oh, you know, let me think about that. And I'm like, why do you need to think about it? You're a designer and you took the chalk out to the sidewalk. It like, to me, it's like second, it's so second nature for us yeah, to be the artists we are that we're not even seeing how the art, the artistry that is innate to us is at play in our parenthood because it's dismissed and it's, it's, it does us a disservice. It does our children a disservice. It keeps us small and um, everyone else benefits. And hmm. I'm, I'm tired of that. <laughs> um, I feel like we could talk all day, but I'm going to ask you the couple of little questions that I usually ask at the end, just because we're coming to the end of our time here. Um, but if you do find yourself kind of going to that dark place of despair are there any tangible things that you reach for again and again that can help you come out of it? Like a book you reread or music you listen to or something like that? Um, right now, I sing to my child at bedtime and I reach into my mind and find songs from musicals that I listened to as a child. I don't know all the words to them. So if I don't know the word, I just say the word banana. <laughs> um and I, I've come to really treasure this, this bedtime practice to the point where now there's like seven songs happening versus there used to be just one. Um, I think that it's rare that I have the opportunity to discuss clown or what it means to me in any sort of in-depth way with persons. And so that is always invigorating to me. Um, it's it's another thing about which I will evangelize in perpetuity. It's it's um, and so finding um, a, a form or a resource or connecting to another parent. Um, I learned Liz Lerman, who was in the workshop with us last two weekends ago. At the end of it, came up to me and said, um, "I see you." And she said, "Dialogue is your refuge." And I had never thought about that before, but that's actually the most healing thing for me that mm -hmm. yes, there are pieces of art, books and things that I, uh, that I could return to again and be like, yes, that's so, yes. But actually for me, this, the privilege of talking to you for an hour and feeling that you and I are, um, in alignment with the things that we value or the things that we're interested in, in this conversation. And it's worth having this conversation that to me is restorative. Yeah. And, um, I believe that art is inherently dialogic art making is dialogic and <clears throat> this quest to be in conversation with others, meaningful conversation isn't new. It's, it, it was a component of me as a child and 
Liz just gave me this framework like two weekends ago. And I was like, oh, it is my right. Oh <laughs> You're like, that is my life. That's why you a t-shirt. <laughs> so I would say that that is what it is. And so creating the mamas and the pamas gives me that structure for dialogue. Now I have a different role in those conversations. It's, it, it's, I'm holding the space, right? So I'm facilitating, but I'm also receiving mm-hmm. and I'm deep in the inquiry with the cohort of mothers and pregnant people that are gathered. Yeah. Um, I believe so strongly in the healing capacities of dialogue that it almost could be problematic in some places, probably <laughs> has been, but I'd say that that is the, the thing and the songs that I sing my son reminding my, oh, I do know all the words to that from a freaking My Fair Lady or whatever right. it is. Like, I know all that words from the music, man. Oh <laughs> it's it's weirdly restored. And then we'll bring out some like, I'll bring out some Joni Mitchell and I'll get halfway through it. And I'm like, this is not appropriate for a bit of mine, but I'm already in it. <laughs> right? um, is there any piece of art that you've taken in recently that you want to recommend of any form? Formally, I can't think of the last time I sat in a theater and watched things or went to a museum and and or had an experience in that kind of um because moving out here in the pandemic it's it's a different world out here i live outside the city now and in a little right. house and i'm i'm clawing my way back in a sense to those direct and visceral experiences um but i will say that this is not art but I'm rereading um, Rage Becomes Her by Soraya Chamali. Hmm. And I would say that any person who claims to care about women or female identifying folks in any way should read this book. And I said the same thing when I read it the first time when it was first published. And I'm reading it again now to sort of bolster my um, relationship to some of her con- concepts. But I say it's a very, um, it can be triggering and difficult, but it's also insanely validating. When she talks, she truly breaks down the caregiving tax that is given to women, whether they're mothers or not. Um, the, The challenges women face in terms of how we are viewed as less than in the world and how that structurally plays out and experientially plays out. The fact that bathrooms are designed as if men and women have equal bathroom needs. Like there's all kinds of stuff in the world that is saying to us, your needs don't matter. And she's just putting it all there. And um, in a way that's accessible um, as opposed to some books that feel really like uh, they're written in a way where I, I get bored reading them, even though I'm really interested in what <laughs> This is not the case. Oh gosh, I have to request it from the library. It's it's um, it's one of my um, most favorite or preferred um, books that really encapsulate the challenges that women face. Um, mm. And I would say that. And then I would say um, Bisa Butler. Did we talk about Bisa Butler in your mamas? I don't remember if we did. Bisa Butler is this fucking badass quilting artist. Oh, yes, 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 we did. She, I just saw that she quilted um, a, a, a quest love <laughs> Oscar. And I was like, I fucking love this one. Carrie Mae Weems, fucking love that woman. I mean, oh, Carrie Mae Weems is just like, just there's something, there's something <laughs> else going on with her. I have a list on the Mama's website, which is www.motherartistsmakingart.com. There's a list of resources that is ever growing. And Do you have any sessions that are starting soon? We just started one okay. for the um, PAMAs. And um, I'm not sure when the next ones will be because it seems that moms, moms are moms don't sign up for things that are for them. They sign their children up for things. And if they have like, you know, a couple hundred dollars extra, which who has that, but (laughs) they spend it on their children, right. Or something that the family needs. And so, but I also have once a month, um, there's a free 
mom's coffee, a virtual mom's coffee, the first Friday morning of every month. And any mom can show up to that and any mom can be there. And that's literally just like, what do you want to talk about with some moms? The mamas itself, like the six, six week gathering is really a deep investigation into the mother artist identity. And we talk about the work of other mother artists and your own responses to their work that you investigate creatively. So that's a, like a different kind of experience. And, um, there are other ideas I have for what the mamas could become and could hold for us inside that duality, which isn't even the right word, inside that schmush up that is mother artist. So. Well, I hope everyone checks it out. It was so wonderful when I did it last summer. I'm so grateful to know you. Yeah, I so appreciate this time. When you live alone with a five-year-old, there's not a lot of space to have conversations that fly in all these different directions. And thank you so much for providing space for this conversation, for letting me interrupt you and have all <laughs> and, and celebrating mother artists. And I'm really grateful. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of The Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thecompasspodcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month, and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please review and follow in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brendan Spieth, audio assistance from Monik Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.